Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone, Dr. Mercola, helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined with Joe uh, by, <clears throat> let me start that over again. Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And we are delighted to be joined today by Georgie Dinkoff, who is really an expert in linoleic acid, one of my favorite topics, because I'm convinced um, that it is clearly one of the most important variables to control, understand, and implement in your life if you want to optimize your health. I believe it's probably the primary contributing factor, far, far more so than sugars in your diet. Uh, but it's the primary culprit in processed food that contributes to our premature morbidity with chronic degenerative disease and mortality. So we're going to dive deep today in one of my favorite topics. So thank you and welcome, or welcome and thank you for joining us today, Georgie. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. It's an honor to be here. Yeah. So why don't you provide us with a bit of your um, history and what gives you a such a, a important uh, position to comment on this topic because you know you're a diligent researcher as I understand and I'm just really curious as to how you acquired this expertise. Um, it was actually I'm completely self-taught when it comes to biochemistry and just the biology topics in general. Um, I my my academic training is in computer science, um, but when I was graduating from college around 2002, we we're basically like the in the United States the country was entering the post.com crash era and uh, nobody really wanted to touch people with degrees like mine so mm -hmm. i found a job as a programmer um, at a biomedical uh, institution research outfit which was renting space from a university i went to georgetown here in dc and they were called the national biomedical research foundation um, and they built websites which you're probably familiar with the, the most famous product of theirs is called uniprot uniprot.org Mm -hmm. um, so basically, I was one of the programmers that was building the website, but around me were 40, 50, maybe sometimes even 60, some of the brightest doctors and biochemists uh, in the country and actually from around the world. So if this is your group and it was only one other IT person there, um, if you want to mingle, if you want to be part of the group, you kind of have to be able to participate in, the, in their conversations and their conversations revolved around mostly biochemistry. So, you know, one day I just approached one of them, one of my uh, supervisors and said, okay, so what do I need to do? He said, well, um, unless you're trying to do research as a career, you don't really need the degrees. Everything is, even back as far back as 2002, most information was already online. Mm -hmm. So he said, read this introductory book to biochemistry, read this introductory book to physiology, read a little bit of endocrinology, because that was his specialty. And he said, and after that, it's all about reading PubMed studies, uh, attending conferences, and basically, and if you have the money, which he, he said you were not going to get because you don't have the degrees, uh, doing your own experiments. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how it started for me. So between 2002, 2005, I was part of this group as a programmer, but I basically started attending all of their, all of their lectures and classes. Some of them were teaching at the university. Some of them were teaching at nearby universities. So I kept going. 
you know, as a young single person, didn't have anything better to do. Uh, and I tried to utilize my time the best I could. And over a period of about three years, I, it kind of started to click, right? Mm-hmm. So I started to understand what these people are talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and after that, uh, in 2005, I left and I got myself a full-time job in the IT sector. Mm-hmm. Um, and then kept reading and reading and reading. And the reason I kind of got into this bioenergetic area, which is also like, a, of which Little Lake Cast is a big part of, is that around 2009, I had the... Uh, uh, sort of called bad luck, or at least the bad decision on my part to become low carbon. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, being an athlete in college, I basically happened to combine very low carb diet with very exhaustive exercise. And I got myself into a really big predicament there. Basically, I started getting these very weird neurological symptoms, um, you know, tingling of the extremities, uh, headaches, uh, sensitivity to light and whatnot. And I went to the doctor, he said, uh, you know, it could be MS. So he sent me for an MRI, everything came back clean. And um, basically he said, I don't know what to tell you, but you know, low carbon is good. Keep doing it. Uh, exercise is good. <laughs> keep doing it. <laughs> and I kept doing that. And then one day I just woke up one night, I woke up and it took me like a good 10 minutes to realize and actually recognize where I am. That really, really freaked me out. So since I'm originally from Bulgaria, aspirin is a big thing there. They consider it actually a full-fledged drug, which everybody should be using. Uh, one day I was just searching for, you know, aspirin and what it can help my brain symptoms, neurological symptoms. So I typed, you know, brain aspirin, and then I think I typed multiple sclerosis or something like that. And then Dr. Pete's website came up. And Dr. Pete is basically this biologist, who American biologist, who's been writing about the role of energy in the cell and how this energy is used for not just keeping the cell alive, but also maintaining the cell structure. Um, and uh, that's how I got into, into, into his writings. And with my background from the original biochemical group, Basically, I kept, uh, I started learning his work. And eventually, over the last two or three years, I started doing my own experiments, uh, mostly with hamsters, mice, and rats. Um, and a lot of the stuff that Dr. Pete writes about and what is written about Little Lake as if you actually dared to dig deep enough because medical industry does not like to talk about little lake acid, but if the research is out there, if you, try, if you try to pick up some of the studies and replicate them, um, actually a lot of the findings are coming back as, as the studies are saying that little lake acid is far from this benign macronutrient uh, that you simply ingest in your diet and you oxidize it for fuel and that's and everything is great. In fact, they'll tell you that it will lower your cholesterol, right? It's good for yeah, heart disease. <laughs> uh, there were these, I found these ads from back in the 50s and 60s when they were selling the corn oil called mazola oil. Mm-hmm. And there were these ads for the housewives saying, mazola you men, you know, he's going to lower his cholesterol. Mazola you men, he'll be a better partner in bed. Mazola you men, you do, he'll do all these great things for, for your husband and your children. But, you know, if you look at the actual research and what linoleic acid, da- acid does at the biochemical level, it's very hard to uh, come to a very different conclusion, which is that it's a highly pro-inflammatory mediator, uh, which it has, even without getting metabolized into inflammatory mediators, it has its own endocrine effects, which mimic largely those of estrogen. And now estrogen is starting to get recognized as a, you know, this big factor in disease. In fact, in 2001, National Institutes of Health declared estrogen, at least the ethanol estradiol, which is used in birth control pills, it declared as a known human carcinogen. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, if we have this dietary component, which is virtually ubiquitous, it's everywhere, right? There's hardly a processed food anywhere where it does not contain at least one of the omega-6 
uh, fatty acids, mostly linoleic acid because it's so prevalent in nature. Uh, well, if it's everywhere, then we're basically we're kind of getting into this hyperestrogenic state, both men and ma- males and females and children. Um, and it's a little surprised that the rate of chronic disease has been rising. In fact, you can look at the curve of chronic disease, especially cardiovascular disease, over the last over the 20th century, and then overlay that the, another curve, which is the consumption of omega-6 fatty acids. And these curves match almost perfectly. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that background, uh, which generates quote quite a bit of questions on my end. Uh, first of all, it's you're an inspiration to anyone watching this and recognize that if you have a, a modicum of intelligence and dedication and discipline, that you too can acquire this type of expertise. You do not need a degree in school. You do not need to go to medical school, certainly, and you don't need a degree in molecular biology. You can learn it. The material is out there. And as you said, since the beginning of the 20th century, largely as there is thanks to the internet, most of this information is freely available mm-hmm. to you. And you and you just, whether you are enrolled in an academic institution to get a degree or not, you still are, your challenge is still to learn this information, to acquire it, and you still have to study it. So it's the same darn process. You're just a little bit more challenging, but if you've got the dedication and willpower, you can do it as you clearly demonstrated. So thank you for providing that example. And I'm particularly curious about your experience with the uh, exercise you had. What what type of athlete were you? An endurance athlete? Yes, I was rowing. I was uh, on on the school. So you're an endurance athlete. And and uh, there, because there's basically two types, there's a strength athlete and an endurance athlete. Yep. And I, I participated for, for the first 40 years, well, for 40 years of my life into endurance training and, and somewhat regret that because as we, I'm sure both reached the same conclusion, there are better ways to get, exactly. to get healthy. Yeah. Concentric training, which is with, with weights, right? You know, yeah, we're yeah. mostly stimulating mitochondria. That's the way to go. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and I virtually do no uh, endurance training other than through the resistance training which you can get uh, uh, endurance effects, not something that long-term, uh, but you cardiac benefits. That's what yep. I meant. Not yep. Endurance. Yep. So, um, so why do, before we dive deep into linoleic acid, I, 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 the other point you bring out and is really an important part of this discussion because so many um, people and clinicians and, and health educators who understand the importance of diet and the role of the food and optimizing your health are confused on this issue. They really believe that uh, the low carb, that carbs are essentially uh, villains and they're evil and you've got to get as low carb as possible. And, and I was confused too a, a while back and, and obviously a, a bit later than you understood what was going on, but there, because most people, 19 out of 20 people in the United States are metabolically inflexible yep. and they will benefit from a low carb diet invariably. But the confusion is you can only do it for so long and then you're going to run into trouble. Exactly. You definitely it's run like into a short term intervention. If you, this is your normal diet for a yeah. long term, you're asking for trouble. A hundred percent. There is like no doubt in my mind and I'm glad you reached this. So why don't you share your experience with us? And let's dive into that one because that is another important topic to to help people understand and clarify the, the, the gross misunderstanding out there that's prevalent in, in many people and educators who are teaching this. Well, the way I, the reason I got into it is because, uh, you know, I, after I got out of college and started getting a little bit older, I started getting a little bit weight, right? Uh, went to the doctor, did a, a fasting blood glucose test. The came, test came back. Uh, I was in the upper ni- 90s, right? So the doctor's like, well, between 100 and 120, we call it pre-diabetic. Uh, we don't, we kind of want to see it below 90. So why don't you cut down on carbs? So I said, okay, how much? He said, well, the more you cut down on carbs, the less carbs there will be in your blood. It turns out that it's not correct. 
Um, and then, but I did follow that advice initially, and then I cut out almost all the all of all the carbs. They didn't go into ketosis, but I was very low carb diet. Maybe I was trying to eat less than ten grams of carbs per meal. That's less ultra low. Normally, low carb is like below fifty grams. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, it, I mean, I spent a lot of time, which I regret, but maybe it was in, in it was for good in the long run. Uh, I was really diligent to my with my portions. I was eating a low carb diet, and then I started running. Right. So uh, people who do endurance exercise, they know that the so, there's the so-called window of carb burning, and then you hit kind of like a wall. And then if you push through, you're basically going into fat burning mode, right? Um, and uh, really, it's like the difference between the two different muscle fibers, because the gly- glycolytic ones, the white muscle fibers, they prefer to oxidize the sugar. And while you have glycogen available, you're mostly exercising those. But after about 20 minutes or like, let's say, an hour of intense exercise, uh, you're probably running low on glycogen, which is the primary storage of glucose. Uh, in the body. Um, so your liver and muscles, the primary storage of glycogen. So they, they flush everything they can into the blood, provide the fuel. And then eventually, if that is not enough, then basically what happens is adrenaline has to start rising and cortisol, and they have to start doing two things. Number one, adrenaline will start supplying fat from your fat stores to the bloodstream to circulate and get oxidized fuel. And because the, the brain prefers actually to oxidize sugar whenever possible, cortisol will also rise together with adrenaline to shed some of the soft tissues such as muscles, cartilage, skin, you know, any organ that's basically considered, any tissue that's considered non-crucial, uh, and some of that will get shredded to amino acids, then they'll go to the liver to produce glucose. So long story short, once you uh, exhaust your supplies of sugar from the food that was stored in the body, then you start consuming yourself. Um, and then, you know, that is considered good uh, because you are losing, um, you know, a, a bit of a fat in the process because you have to oxidize fat. And the reason I think doctors used to recommend endurance exercise is because they were saying, well, once you push through the glycogen window and you start burning fat, then going forward, you'll be burning mostly fat, which is correct. But what happens when you burn mostly fat? Well, uh, depending on the on the type of fatty acids, many of them turns out that they have a very strong anti-insulin effect, and they block the effects of insulin in the body in many many cells and tissues. Mm-hmm. So, if and if you look at a person with type two diabetes, actually their blood profile is not very different from the blood profile of a of a long dur- uh, long distance endurance athlete, such as a person running marathons. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but you know, it's just the only difference that the person with type two diabetes is almost invariably fat. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but they have the bottom line is they have a big supply of fats, uh, you know, basically always, always going into the bloodstream. So they have high levels of lipolysis, they have high levels of free fatty acids in the blood. Uh, and then multiple studies demonstrated that if you actually f- find a way to either block the effects of these fatty acids at the insulin receptor level, or you find a l- way to lower lipolysis, or you generally decrease the supply of fat to the blood, the insulin resistance of these people can actually disappear almost completely. There is a famous study done with uh, type 2 diabetics, established type 2 diabetes, there's no question about it. And they gave them a very, uh, actually massive dose of aspirin. Uh, and aspirin has a very strong anti-lipolytic effect. It's also anti inflammatory, but at this dosage, the effects were actually mostly uh, on lipolysis. So they gave them the, uh, the dosage of 90, 90 milligrams per kilogram. So for a hundred kilo person, that's nine grams of aspirin uh, daily. Wow. And after they, they did this for two weeks, the entire insulin resistance of these people completely disappeared despite them still be- being morbidly obese. Now, after they stopped the aspirin and let them go after over a period of a few weeks, then the, all, all of the symptoms of insulin resistance and, you know, basically high blood sugar and whatnot uh, reappeared. 
Uh, so the question is, okay, so what's going on here? Because these people are controlling their diet and I was controlling my diet. I wasn't eating a lot of sugar, but my sugar actually started climbing um, mm-hmm. the, the less sugar I was eating. And the process, it turns out, that is in control of this uh, of the blood sugar is mostly the process of gluconeogenesis, which mm-hmm. is if you stop supplying carbs to your organs, the ones that need them, the, organ, the organism has a method to get those carbs. And that is through elevating cortisol and then starting to basically destroy uh, tissue that you need because it's very metabolically active lean muscle mass you know bone whatnot and then and then basically wait, these these cells yeah how does the cortisol destroy the lean muscle tissue uh, well, I mean, basically, uh, I think the, it's through the through the activation of the glucocorticoid receptor, uh, you're basically getting into a situation where this immediately suppresses the synthesis of new DNA and RNA. Um, really? So yeah. Um, and one of the one of the methods, one of the ways the anabolic steroids work turns out is that it's oh, mostly through antagonism of the glucocorticoid receptor. Uh, which is how the aspirin worked in the study you just cited precisely so what aspirin did is first of all it 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 lowers lipolysis because it blocks some of the receptors on which adrenaline works Mm -hmm. and number two it actually is an inhibitor it turns out the metabolite of aspirin salicylic acid Mm -hmm. is an inhibitor of the enzyme 11 beta hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase type 1 which is the enzyme that synthesizes the active cortisol from the inactive cortisol. So you basically by lowering drastically these people's cortisol, which implies that it was high in the first place, mm-hmm. you you completely, completely cured the insulin resistance while they still maintain their obesity. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, after they stopped and then, you know, they went back to their, you know, uh, high stress lipolytic lifestyle, then all these things return, but it shows you that it's stress, which, which is what we associate cortisol with and the, uh, which basically, which is what drives this process of insulin mm-hmm. resistance, um, and, and, and obesity, even basically people with Cushing disease, if, I'm sure you've seen them in your career. They have the typical phenotype, very skinny extremities and basically rotund, very like a round well, that, midsection. That, Actually, that would be Cushy's syndrome, I think. Yeah, Cushy's uh, syndrome. Cushy's disease is a very specific uh, tumor of the, uh, I think, the adrenal cortex where you're, you're, you're I mean, it's, it's a, it's one of the hormone tumors. Yeah, and it's I in the pituitary. One, yeah. one, it's a pituitary? It's pituitary, yeah. yeah. Maybe anterior pituitary. But I did see one of those patients in my lifetime, and he was actually blind in a wheelchair. Yeah. Not from the Cushing disease, but it was indirectly. He had been to the University of Chicago, and they decided he needed brain surgery to save his life because you know it was it was indeed a tumor that was killing him. But they they slipped into surgery and they paralyzed his optic nerves, or they cut his optic nerves, so he was blind. And then the anesthesiologist screwed up on the anesthesia, and they paralyzed him from the waist down. So he was blinded in a wheelchair from the attempt to resolve his, his problems. But, yeah, but most clinicians never see a Cushing's disease person in their, in their entire career. But Cushing's syndrome is quite common as a result of getting uh, corticosteroids or, or corticosteroids, or it turns out if you look at the most of the obese people, they actually are, are kind of on the spectrum, right? They're not they're not Cushing disease per se, but they're Cushing syndrome where they have basically loss of muscle mass and, 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 uh, you know, the, the acquisition of fat. I think you, the doctors sometimes call it sarcopenic obesity, I guess mm-hmm. it's like yeah. very low muscle mass, but, but like basically like significant amount of fat. Um, and then it turns out that basically th- this process is driven by cortisol. Um, it, there is a study which, 
humans where they gave the uh, people with Cushing syndrome, they gave them the uh, cortisol blocker known as RU486, also known as bifepristone, and the public general public knows this as the abortion pill. Actually, it was developed as a cortisol blocker, but they decided it's going to sell better as an abortion pill, right? And that's how they sell it. It happens a lot in drug drug development. Yeah, but this drug turns out that it's basically capable of causing sustained weight loss in these people without any change in the diet. So it comes back to, okay, so what's going on here? Apparently cortisol is a factor. When does cortisol rise? Well, when you exercise, right? And what happens if you don't provide sugar on top of that? Well, I guess cortisol is probably going to rise even higher. Um, I mean, I made the the sort of like, I kind of felt that I was hyper cortisolemic because I had trouble sleeping. I was shaking all the time. I was cold, right? My blood sugar was starting to go go higher. Uh, And then the doctor said, well, we probably should run a check for some hormones. And then he checked my cortisol and I was two times higher than the upper limit to the point where the doctor said, oh my God, this could be Cushing disease, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. Cushing disease, right? So he sent me for another MRI, but -hmm. nothing, everything came back normal. He said, well, the only explanation that I have is that you're overexerting yourself. Mm-hmm. And then he was right. Um, so after I found Dr. Pete, I kind of stopped this this madness. I re- regained my normal diet. It wasn't a high carb diet yet, but it was a normal diet where basically the macronutrients are about equal, 33% each, right? Mm-hmm. And then all of my problems sort of like slowly disappeared and I was feeling normal again. I was sleeping. You know, I wasn't jittery all the time. Uh, I wasn't getting psychotic. Mm-hmm. Um, and what year was this? What year was this? That was 2009, 2010 timeframe. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah, about Excellent. a decade. Well, let's just, well, to help people better understand your very intriguing uh, explanation or de- description of this, uh, why don't we review the amount of glucose that the body stores and the time frame of it, or you know, the, glu- the glycogen storage capacity? It's, be- it's basically two organs: the liver and the muscles, right? The muscle yep. being more, and the glycogen in the muscle cannot be given systemically it doesn't go out of your muscle leak out of your muscles and somehow raise your blood sugar in your blood to provide fuel for your brain it just doesn't happen that way so essentially those are are there any other organs in the muscle and liver that stores glycogen significantly Um, not significantly the gonads store a little bit uh, mostly in the form of fructose they prefer it it's necessary for the synthesis of uh, for basically for the generation of the sperm Uh, and it's some of it stored in the ovaries as well because they they kind of need the supply but those are very tiny organs they don't really they Mm -hmm. can't they can store more than let's say like i don't know an ounce Um, so those are really the two big the two big storage mechanisms and i think combined they may be uh, capable of storing i think the liver up to a pound Mm-hmm. Um, and then maybe the muscles, maybe another pound. So you basically have a kilogram, a kilo or two pounds of sugar to, to float around to be used as fuel. And depending on the intensity of the exercise, this can go anywhere, you know, between a half an hour to like up to an hour and a half. But however, what happens if a person has liver disease, right? Which mm-hmm. two thirds of the Americans have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Then your, your capacity of the liver to store glycogen because the liver is now fat on up drastically declines. So now there is very, basically much lower storage of glycogen in the liver. Um, and if you're, if you have obesity, this also translates into peripheral obesity, the, where the muscles are, there will also be quite a bit of fat, which also interferes with the muscles ability to store glycogen. So this is probably one reason why people that are overweight or in or obese, when they start exercising, well, there are many reasons, but one of the reasons why they get very, very quickly tired and switch to the fatty acid oxidation uh, is that they just don't have that much of glycogen to, to go by. Uh, conversely, young people, um, I'm sure you've seen them, they're capable of going for hours without the need to refuel themselves. 
Um, and you know many reasons for that. One is they're more uh, they they oxidize the glucose better, right? They don't generate as much lactic acid, but it's also they can also store a lot more glycogen. So that one of the reasons why maybe exercise is so good for young people, not so much for the older folks, the endurance one, is that in them basically they're stimulating their cells, they're stimulating the mitochondria, they're providing the necessary fuel. Um, and in the process of the stimulation, they're also generating a lot of the protective steroids, specifically the adrenal ones, such as pregnenolone and DHEA, uh, and of course, cortisol, because under stress, but they're producing the anti-cortisol ones, which are very, very beneficial. In the older in the older people, uh, the outer, uh, I think some of the layers that are producing pregnenolone and DHEA are kind of atrophying. So you're left with the zona, I think, fasciculata is called, produces cortisol mostly. So uh, an exercise in an older person tends to produce mostly cortisol. Um, and that's why uh, older people or like people that are sicker when they exercise, they get very quickly jittery, they get weak extremities, mm -hmm. and they can't perform as well as the young folks. It's basically the low glycogen stores um, and, and higher levels of stress hormones. Yeah. So you mentioned the NAFLD mm -hmm. uh, as being pervasive in American culture. I'm wondering what your belief is in the cause for this problem. Is it because there's basically two two primary issues, obviously not alcohol, because that's the name of the disease, but it's either excess carbohydrates in the form, primarily fructose, which I believe Robert Lustig or perhaps Richard Johnson advocates as the as the primary issue. And that does seem to help when you reduce those those the fructose levels. But it seems that excess linoleic acid may be more of the pernicious villain. What what's your take on it? Definitely, I, I completely agree, hundred uh, percent. There was a study with uh, was actually alcoholic fatty liver disease. In fact, alcoholic cirrhosis. There is a researcher under the last name of Nanji, um, and he did quite a bit of research uh, with alcoholics who have cirrhosis, and it's also a type of fattening of the liver, but you know, just a different cause. And he gave they basically had different groups, and he then confirmed with animals as well. So he had different groups. One group was basically allowed to eat their normal diet. Another group was given uh, was very carefully asked to remove all of the fats, so they given only coconut oil and another group was actually given ghee which is the kind of like an indian version of butter right well it, it, it's the butter with the protein removed yes exactly clarified butter yes yeah, yeah. um so so what happened well the group that was allowed to consume their normal that which happened to be very high in, in omega-6 acids and primary the primarily the linoleacam not only they had their, their cirrhosis basically they had, they had a very classic progression of cirrhosis to the point where they had liver failure and died mm -hmm. the groups that ate the coconut oil they had complete removal of omega-6 acids from the diet, so they were in close to 100 percent saturated fat not only did basically the cirrhosis stop, it was reversed in the presence of continued alcohol abuse. Um, and then he basically said, okay, let's look at, uh, you know, what is going on here? So he see, since you can't do autopsy on a, on a live person, neither ethical nor possible. So he did animal models and then he basically created the exact same conditions. Then he basically uh, euthanized the animals and started looking at the liver. Well, it looks like the, the liver of people who are eating predominantly omega-6 fatty acids very quickly gets fattened up. Well, the liver, uh, and, and it gets damaged, so it gets also fat, fattened up, and also there's a cell damage of the Kupfer cells uh, due to the many peroxide products of these uh, omega-6 fatty acids. Uh, a lot of malondialdehyde, it is another very specific one, 4-hydroxy nonenal, I think it's called, uh, several mm -hmm. of the Poor, studies. Poor for sure. Yeah, yeah. so uh, the liver was chock full of these of these uh, toxins, some of which were actually known to be carcinogens. Malondialdehyde, I think, is now officially accepted as a carcinogen. Mm -hmm. 
Well, the livers of the uh, of the animals that basically were still alcoholic but were given the saturated fatty acids, they had very little oxidative damage to the cells and they weren't fat. So what what could be what could be explaining this? Well, it turns out that when you're consuming a meal with fat, it's composed of many different fatty acids, right? But let's say that we'll we'll, we'll can separate them to saturated fatty acids, monounsaturated, and then polyunsaturated. It turns out that the liver and most of the organs preferentially oxidize the saturated fatty acids and then the monounsaturated fatty acids, while the polyunsaturated acids are predominantly stored. Um, and in the, the polyunsaturated fatty acids, aside from being, you know, uh, very susceptible to uh, spontaneous, what they call auto-oxidation, right? Um, combustion. Yes, <laughs> combustion, exactly. What else can they do? Well, they're precursors to a number of different inflammatory mediators, such as prostaglandins and leukotrienes. And those those prostag- those inflammatory mediators, which are basically uh, derived from arachidonic acid, which is itself derived from gamma-linoleic acid, which is derived from linoleic acid. Anyways, if you eat a lot of polyunsaturated fats, and specifically linoleic acid, you will basically have more arachidonic acid and then more systemic inflammation. Now, the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is already known to be an inflammatory state. Uh, you cannot get an inflammatory state from saturated fat. It does not produce those same mediators. Saturated fat will either get stored or will get oxidized properly through the process of beta oxidation to carbon dioxide, ATP, and water. And that's about it. Uh, but the polyunsaturated fats, they're actually precursors. They're, they're themselves are unstable, right? They can get uh, combusted, create a lot of toxic byproducts. And the liver being the site of the primary organ of detoxification of whatever you're eating, right, through the diet, guess what? They're going to go mostly there. And then also... Um, because basically they're precursors to a number of different mediators, which enzymes in the body will take these fatty acids, specifically linoleic acid, and then through a chain of reactions, convert it to these prostaglandins, leukotrienes, thromboxanes, okay. and they have a number of different signaling okay. functions, but they're let, very let, inflammatory. Let's hold on for a second, because okay. I've just come quick, come to rapidly appreciate that you are a fire hydrant of information. <laughs> You, we we got to slow it down. We got to we got to feed people with a water hose, not a fire hydrant. Apologies, yes. You're, I mean, your 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 information is phenomenal. It's fantastic. I love it. So I just want to like slow you down a bit, so because there's so much. These are radically important concepts. So the, and the one you just mentioned was that uh, I really wasn't aware of is that your body cannot digest these polyunsaturated fats, the PUFAs, which are primarily omega-6, and pr- which is primarily linoleic acid. Instead, it stores them instead of metabolizing them. Could yep. you expand on that for a bit? Because that's a big point. That yeah, it's a I big think that's piece a, of the puzzle. Yeah, I think it's a, uh, probably the, the biggest sign that the body does not like the polyunsaturated fats is that it prefers to not use them um, in, in, the, in its oxidative apparatus, which is the beta oxidation. Uh, whenever you eat the, this combination of fats, they all get basically esterified in triglycerides. First, they, well, they're in the form of triglycerides. They get broken down, right? Then they get uh, absorbed by the uh, intestinal lumen. Then they get re-esterified and they start circulating around, right? Well, it looks like basically the, uh, uh, you know, the, the triglycerides composed primarily of the polyunsaturated fats, uh, they're, they float around. They have a much, lo- much longer half-life in the bloodstream uh, compared to the saturated and monosaturated, which tells you that something is happening to the other fatty acids, but the, the PUFAs are ba- kind of being left behind. Well, what is happening? And if you look at the, com- the composition, of, uh, of the fatty tissue of a person on a typical Western diet, uh, it, uh, we get bombarded all the time with the uh, with uh, with the words like, "Oh, you're eating too much saturated fat, right?" Mm-hmm. But if oh, you take a biopsy, yeah. right, you will you will see the 
that the majority of the fat that these people are storing is actually polyunsaturated. The saturated fat that they got from the diet was mostly oxidized, um, and then basically much less of it was actually stored. Now, the reverse process of that, and that's really what's causing most of the problems with uh, diabetes, uh, such as kidney failure, liver failure, and whatnot, is that conversely, when you're, let's say, when you're starving or you're fasting, which is what many people with diabetes will be asked to do, to lose weight, right? Mm -hmm. Then you have lipolysis, which is the breakdown of this, of this fatty tissue, mm -hmm. and then supplying these fats to the rest of the organs for oxidation. But but if most of the fat that was stored was PUFA, guess what will get released after, after uh, lipolysis increased? It will mostly be PUFA. Okay. Um, and then uh, the recent oh, wait, studies- wait, wait, wait. Let's yep. stop here because we, we want to feed people in small amounts so they can okay. digest it. Because if we, well, we give them a whole steak at once, it's kind of hard to, <laughs> to, to, to consume. So the, the sort of a background statement to this is implied in what you said that, that uh, the importance of- removing these is is how long are they there now my understanding is that the the half-life of these polyunsaturated fats in your tissues that are embedded in your cell membranes for storage is about 680 days which translates out to almost seven years before they're fully out yes that's so correct. that's why it's so key so it, it so let's give that piece of in piece of the puzzle to people and let them know that but then in addition you know, you bring up a very important point. I mean, these are in your cells and, and you really need to get rid of them. There's no question about it. And probably this, this one of the single best ways is to make sure you don't store anymore. So you get your total intake down below, below 2%, maybe even close to 1%. Uh, then, uh, but why, but you study this really deeply. And this is an important part of the equation that is not well known at all. So why don't you make a tangent and and explain what you believe is the safest way to lower this these these PUFAs, these omega-6 linoleic acid fat, fats that are in your tissues without suffering the consequences of having the damage being done. Okay. So, so first, since you already mentioned that if most of the, the tissue stored of the PUFA of the fat stored is PUFA, just as you mentioned, we don't want a lot of it flooding the bloodstream, right? Mm -hmm. We're going to get in a situation where first of all, it can cause basically uh, ketoacidosis, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if the person is not careful, especially if there is no well, resistance. That would right? be pretty unusual. I mean, is it, have you ever seen keto or heard of ketoacidosis from this? Uh, typically, from, that's just type one diabetes. Uh, from in type two diabetes, if the person uh, exercises way too much, right, and it's on really? a severe, yeah, it's on a diet, they can get into okay. ketosis. Okay, I was not aware of that. Yeah, not aware of that. Okay. I mean, it's very easily controllable. With, they, they get like an insulin pen immediately inject themselves, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. but it's not something you like. You, you want to play with? It happen on a, like a regular basis. I'm sure. assuming, right? Okay. So okay, so we don't want this PUFA that is now that we said is preferentially stored, right? In half life of over what two years. Um, uh, something like that, right? So mm -hmm. what can we do to get rid of it? Because it's there, it's inflammatory, right? It's, it's subject to auto to auto combustion. It's creating the, all these toxic byproducts. The typical answer has been you have you have to exercise as much as possible to get rid of it as quickly as possible. But as I just mentioned, this can create a lot of problems. Um, a, a recent study found that people, even lean people, who are basically running marathons, a good portion of them are actually in acute kidney failure by the time they reach the finish line. I never I never knew this myself, but it's wow. been confirmed over and over. And, and the question is, how is this possible? And then they looked more into this, and it looks like these circulating fatty acids, which are mostly PUFA coming from the stores, they're circulating around and causing energetic problems, but also because of the 
quick peroxidation and quick conversion into the inflammatory mediators, they're damaging many of the organs, uh, predominantly the kidneys. And somebody will say, well, why the kidneys? Well, anything that is not oxidized for fuel, um, it get, basically gets uh, sent to the liver through the bloodstream, the, the phase two the detoxification mechanism. And then the liver basically attaches something called glucuronic acids to these fatty acids to make them more water soluble, can also sulfate them. And then when they're more water soluble, you pee them out with the urine, but they have to go through the kidneys. And it looks like if a sufficiently big supply of these glucuronidated sulfated PUFAs, or let's say linoleic acid, just for the sake of the argument, is flooding the kidneys, it is causing local damage there. So what should we do? Well, it looks like we, we should be, we should not be, we should be taking measures to not get into excessive lipolysis. Well, what is excessive lipolysis? Well, um, I think lipo excessive lipolysis will be any situation where you've run out of glycogen and now the body says, I don't have the fuel because you're not eating, right? Um, and then you've run out of glycogen, then fat is my only my only other fuel plus the, the amino acids that are coming from cortisol, right? So, so basically, uh, you should not be getting to a state where you're chronically starving. Um, acute, let's say like eight to 12 hours uh, fasting, you know, uh, caloric restriction has been shown to have benefits, but anything mm -hmm. longer than that, then you're starting to increase baseline lipolysis. Uh, ah, yeah. that's, that's a danger of excessive time restriction. Exactly. Especially some people, the extreme for that would be OMAD or one meal a day, which is like a two hour eating windows or 20 hours of daily fasting. Yeah, I think I think that's that's too extreme. And several studies have demonstrated that you're elevating baseline cortisol if you're chronically fasted. Uh, the same chronic elevation actually was the increased expression of the enzyme that produces cortisol, which is even worse, in people who were in, engaged in chronic endurance exercise. So if you're a long distance runner, even if you're not practicing low carb over a period of about 10 years, which is what uh, they say, that's what, that's how long it took. These people now, uh, even if they stop running, they're producing a lot more cortisol. And as we mentioned before, cortisol is involved in insulin resistance, is involved in the synthesis of fat and promotes the, most, the storage of fat and whatnot. Um, and basically, so, so how do we get rid of them? Well, uh, the liver, there's always some baseline lipolysis going on. At rest, your muscles, specifically the heart and the skeletal muscles, prefer to oxidize fats. Mm -hmm. But if you strain them, if you get to a point where basically quick energy is needed, then basically these muscles cannot use the fat, and then they're going to try to switch over to glucose. Um, and then through the process of glycolysis, which is if you're really exerting yourself, they really need the energy quickly, they will start converting this uh, the, the converting the glucose to ATP and lactic acid as well. But that's what the muscles would, would prefer to do. But if there's no glycogen, and if you're only supplying these fats, then it's causing massive damage in almost every cell that basically these fats are reaching to. Um, any cell that, that gets a, a sufficient supply of polyunsaturated fat can actually commit apoptosis. This was discovered by accident uh, in one animal study with cancer, because cancer cells are extreme, they have extremely high metabolism, but very inefficient one. Mm -hmm. uh, they're mostly glycolytic cells, right? So they basically injected uh, uh, polyunsaturated fats. I think in one experiment was actually just in lake acid. And then they found out that the tumor disappeared in a matter of 24 hours. Mm -hmm. And then they said, oh my God, we cured cancer. Everything is good. Guess what? Nope. Then massive metastatic processes all over the body uh, happen afterwards. But the point is that even cancer cells, basically, because they kind of show you the lifestyle of a cell, but in much more accelerated fashion, uh, when you give them a, a sufficient supply of polyunsaturated fats, it can kill them. It can actually work like a radiation or, or chemotherapy. It is a type of chemotherapy. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have thought?
Yeah, you don't, so you don't want to be doing this to your normal tissues. And you're doing it to your normal tissues every single time you're overexerting yourself to the point of either yes. glycogen is running low or you're so stressed that your adrenaline has gotten to the point where it's basically uh, you know, increasing lipolysis and you're starting to shed fat. This is a massive, massive piece of the puzzle that I never fully appreciated. And I really thank you for exposing this and helping us understand this fact. Because normally, when you, when you look at molecular biology and the phys physiology of how the body works, it's based on sort of a pre-1860 scenario where you didn't have these high levels of linoleic acid, which totally uh, distorts the, the, the strategies. Because if they weren't there, that you 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 could activate autophagy and get all, all these benefits. You know, the excess you could have a much longer uh, time restricted eating window. But this linoleic acid is the game changer. It totally radically modifies the concept of what needs to be implemented to optimize your health. Completely agree. And um, uh, I don't know if you've seen the older uh, ads from McDonald's and uh, I don't know when Burger King came around, but McDonald's used to fry their fries and most of their foods in beef tallow. Yeah. Uh, most of the like fast food restaurants that people, you know, uh, enjoyed so much in, in the past uh, used to be, uh, uh, the food used to be cooked with uh, very, you know, very healthy ingredients. Well, not according to modern standards, right? Uh, mm -hmm. But still, it was mostly saturated fat and basically there weren't that many pesticides, there weren't that many endocrine disruptors, plastics were not as widespread as they are now. Um, but it's really, it really looks like it's still, it's the uh, introduction of polyunsaturated fats, which really got us into this predicament. Now, polyunsaturated fats were known actually in the early 20th century as a very reliable way to fatten your livestock. So if you're a big farmer, uh, soybean oil is awesome. You know, you, you're taking God every day for soybean oil. Um, <laughs> however, if you're uh, the commissioner of the FDA, right, or the USDA, and you're responsible for public health, this should be the exact opposite of what you need or what you should be recommending to people. Um, it turns out that the polyunsaturated fats have a largely anti-metabolic effect. And somebody would say, well, well, why is this? Like, why does this happen in nature? Well, most of these fats are coming from plants. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that the polyunsaturated fats are actually a very good defense mechanism against many of the so-called predators that these plants are having. It's very few animals in nature that are really designed to eat plants, mostly the herbivores, right? But they have these special stomachs, the three chamber stomachs, and they have a special type of bacteria in each chamber that when they're eating this, these plants that are chock full of PUFAs, uh, predominantly linoleic acid, the bacteria saturates those fats and basically converts them mostly to palmitic esteric acid. So if you're eating lamb or beef um, or goat, right, uh, you actually, despite the fact that this animal is being consumed or should be consuming mostly grass and mostly other plants, which are full of polyunsaturated fats, you actually, by eating these animals, you're eating mostly saturated fats. We are not like those animals. When you give us polyunsaturated fats, that's what's going to end up in our tissues. And this has been confirmed multiple times with pigs. If you feed them the cornmeal, which is, you know, it's got uh, a, quite a bit of, of little lake acid there because of the corn oil, right? If you eat them soy, soybean meal, right? And it's the soybean oil in there. Then basically the fatty acid composition of lard will be mostly polyunsaturated. I've been, every, time, every once in a while, I'll read a study and says, oh, we had three groups of animals. One, zero fat. One, high, high saturated fat. And what did they give them for high saturated well, fat? Lard. Lard. Yes. <laughs> 20% linoleic acid. Exactly. 30%. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's how basically we are these days. We consume a lot of this food um, to which the only provable, whether it's benefit or not, we can discuss 
later if you want, uh, if you have, we have time is that it says it lowers the levels of LDL. And this for a while, this has been a great mystery. It is true that if you consume a lot of omega-6 or omega-3, LDL, which is known also as the bad cholesterol, even though it's not really bad, it's the oxidized cholesterol that's bad, but let's say it's bad for a while, it, it will truly drop. And then there was this mystery for a while. And I think last year, suddenly they just discovered what the really mystery is. When you're consuming saturated fats, they're very uh, good at improving the structure of the cell, specifically the lipid bilayer. Mm-hmm. Now, and basically this means that it, because a lot of the cholesterol is stored there, uh, what is happening is that the cell says, I don't need as much cholesterol. You're giving me a lot of structural material. I love these saturated fatty acids. I can synthesize my own cholesterol from them if needed be. So I'm going <laughs> to dump some of my extra cholesterol into the bloodstream. Mm-hmm. And because this cholesterol needs to be carried around, it's carried around by LDL. So when you're eating saturated fat, yes, your LDL is rising, but it's rising because the cholesterol that is already in the cell is actually not as needed anymore but it's it's a good sign but when you're eating the pufa the pufa is actually increasing the hydrophilicity of the cell because the pufa itself is un, an unsaturated fat with at least two double bonds and actually more if you go into the omega-3s so the cell says oh my god i don't like this permeability in my layer i have to protect myself from viruses bacteria and whatnot so i need to basically protect myself i need more cholesterol so what's happening is that the basically the body is starting to dump the cholesterol from ldl into the cell to help them protect themselves from from this onslaught of PUFA. Uh, So it's actually a bad side effect. And to confirm this, since we now know, I think medicine officially admits that it's the oxidized cholesterol that is the problem. Specifically, it's it's member known as 7-ketocholesterol, which is a very pro-atherogenic molecule, no doubt about it. But then they've confirmed multiple times that if you feed saturated fat, the levels of 7-ketocholesterol decline. It's an oxidative product of cholesterol. But if you feed PUFA, which is basically stimulating these destructive uh, peroxidative processes, the levels of 7-kilo cholesterol increases. And then they looked at the plaque, which is in the blood vessels, uh, which is basically kind of like, this is what really gives you a heart attack when a, when a chunk basically gets cut off and starts floating around and plugs the blood vessel. Then they looked at the plaque and they said, okay, what does it contain? Well, it contains white blood cells, contains calcium, and contains PUFA peroxidation byproducts. No, not, nothing from saturated fat in, 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 in that atherogenic plaque. Oh, and 7-kilo cholesterol. Mm-hmm. So that's really that's really the plaque, and it turns out that the plaque is uh, is basically a, a reaction to to an inflammation which is caused by these toxic PUFA byproducts and PUFA itself being inflammatory. And when it gets basically gets lodged into the into the the, the walls, the endothelial cells uh, that are lining the blood vessels, uh, this causes a localized inflammatory reaction. And the first response of the body is to send there the white blood cells, and basically to kind of like uh, protect the blood vessel from damage and from rupture um, that's really the purpose of the plaque so it's it's the body's not trying to kill you it's simply trying to repair in the best possible uh, manner or to isolate the issue which is there and the issue that is trying to isolate is the proof of peroxidation byproducts and seven keto, seven keto cholesterol so what how can you get around this don't eat PUFA or at least drastically reduce it go back to whatever the grandmother was eating 70 years ago well probably a hundred and 50 years ago, yes. would be more yes. ideal yeah. because the, the conversion started with Crisco or close to that time, which was, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s before it really took off. But I, I wanted, I had some other questions uh, with respect to uh, the mechanism of the NAFLD. It, you, you had mentioned that it was, is it the inflammatory or, or just the mechanism of 
of PUFA LA damage in general? Is it my understanding was that linoleic acid, a virgin linoleic acid that's consumed from a healthy plant seed or not, uh, not necessarily industrially processed seed oil, of course, but you know there are healthy omega sixes out there, and if you get them and they're they're essentially undamaged, um, is it the inflammatory mediators that they produce that's the issue, or is the the, the oxidative byproducts like uh, malondialdehyde or 4-HNE that that causes most of the damage? I would say 2080 in 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 um in favor or well, favor of the latter. In other words, the inflammatory effects are really the the, the strongly damaging part, and this is That's confirmed. Eighty percent, eighty percent. Gosh, I would have thought it was reversed. If you give people aspirin or another non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, yeah, you knock it out. And in fact, several studies have demonstrated you can actually stop, though not reverse, NAFLD with a regular consumption of baby aspirin. Wow, um, that is mind blowing. Really, I really appreciate that insights. Okay, so I want to follow up on, we started going down the rabbit hole of essentially not encouraging people to go to excessive fasting, time-restricted eating, or even water fasting, multi-day water fasting, which is going to make it even worse, which is which is explains the the paradox that many people have of they, you know, they, they, they uh, wear these blood uh, glucose monitors and they notice that their blood sugar drops. And then all of a sudden, you know, two, three, four days into it, their blood sugar starts rising again yep. for this very same reason. Yep. Yep. So, so I, this without a doubt, acute fasting has benefits. It has been proven time and again um, mm-hmm. in virtually every clinical trial that looked at it. Uh, and the question is, and okay, so what does it do? Because really, unless you're fasting for, let's say like a month, you're not yeah. going to be losing that much of that extra fat that's making you insulin resistant. But yeah. we're seeing in the first 24 to 48 hours, that blood glucose drops, uh, the production of carbon dioxide increases, which is a symptom of good mitochondrial function, right? Um, The stress hormones tend to decline initially, but then after that, they rise. So so what's going on? What is responsible for the benefits of acute fasting? Um, And then a group did a study with animals and then some animals, they kept germ-free, which means they gave them an antibiotic and their, their, their GI tract was entirely sterile. Um, I think in the U.S., in most countries, it's done with people before abdominal surgery to kind of like limit the, you know, the risk of infection. They give them these very powerful antibodies that completely kill off the microbiome, which is the bacteria that's in your gut, right? Um, and then they had several groups. Uh, some groups were basically germ-free, um, and then other groups were not germ-free. And then they found out that basically that the germ-free animals, first of all, never got fat. You feed them whatever you want. <laughs> they just don't get fat. Uh, or if they do, they rapidly, uh, basically, uh, I mean, we got to feed them a really very high calorie diets in order to get to like a slight obesity. Um, and the second thing is they found out that basically that in the uh, rats that were not germ-free, um, they were able to replicate the effects of acute fasting by blocking the endotoxin receptor, uh, which is the receptor known as TLR4 toll-like receptor for. Um, and then it turns out that most of the benefits of acute fasting is because it's less endotoxin when you're not eating. And what is endotoxin? Well, when you eat this food, whatever doesn't get digested and absorbed into the bloodstream gets to the gut and the, the, to the large intestine, to the colon, where basically a very large bacteria, which outnumbers our cells in what, 10 to 1, I think? <laughs> right, right. Starts digesting this undigested food. And in the process of increased bacterial turnover, that all dead bacteria, 
specifically the gram-negative bacteria, has this, this component in their bacterial cell wall, which is called endotoxin. It happens to be the way our body recognizes uh, uh, bacterial pathogens in the body. They all tend to activate that receptor called TLR4. So when you're feeding the bacteria in your column, there is a basically increased bacterial turnover, the old bacteria die, and then there's this basically, when they break down, there's a lot of endotoxin. But with increasing age, the permeability of the gut increases. So you, you basically, you're absorbing some of that endotoxin into your bloodstream, where it has the exact same effects as if you had a bacterial infection. It triggers a massive inflammatory response, depending on how, how high the dosage is, right? So if you inject it directly into the blood, you can kill a person. You can basically like, as if they had like a, a sepsis, the, a septic reaction from a, from a bacterial infection. But if it's a lower amount, such as what usually happens when we eating poorly digestible or pro-inflammatory food, then over time you're getting this, this basic, every time you eat, you're getting an inflammatory state. And what does the body do uh, in order to kind of dampen this inflammation uh, every time you eat? Well, the primary uh, mechanism is cortisol. So it's not a quick, that kind of explains why people with chronic inflammation have chronically elevated cortisol, not to the levels of causing Cushing syndrome, but still higher than what we would like to see. Uh, so it turns out that the benefits of fasting are mostly due to the fact that we are reducing our endotoxin exposure um, but if you actually stop eating for a continuous amount of time, you quickly kind of like negate these benefits by the fact that the stress hormones will increase, the body will kick into the sort of preservation uh, mode, which is drastically lower metabolism. And anything that you eat, that body will prefer to store versus oxidize. Um, I'm sure you've seen the show, the, the Biggest Loser, I think they call it, like sure, on TV. Sure, sure. Yeah, they put these people through like grueling, um, you know, uh, programs to lose the weight just because they have to make the show, right? And then when they release them, then basically these people, uh, uh, you know, they, they saw some doctors. Doctors said, you have to re reduce your calories. Otherwise, you're going to become as fat as before. But then they found that even at the reduced calorie diet, these people started massively gaining weight. They regained all of their weight before the show, and then they become even fatter. But what explains it? Because of the chronic fasting, they lowered their basal metabolic rate. And now basically if before, even though fat, they were they were they could survive on let's say 5,000 calories a day. Uh, after they, lo they lost all the weight, they found that in, on, even on a 1,500 calorie diet a day, they were gaining weight. So this chronic fasting um, basically tells the body that the resources are not there. So the body should basically lower the metabolic rate. You don't want to consume yourself, right? If your metabolism stays high, but you're not eating, eventually you'll get into a very catabolic state. And it's seen in people with Graves' disease, which is hyperthyroidism, right? They get, if it's, if it's uncontrolled, they can get like really, really skinny. They look almost like a cancer patient. So right, that's so, what happens with chronic fasting. We are basically low, chronically lowering our metabolic rate. So let's go back to the elevation of cortisol. Mm -hmm. It appears there's two contributions uh, once you're in the fasting mode. One is that it's a response to the low glucose in your body's inability to provide glucose as a substrate for fuel primarily in your brain, but other tissues too, and heart. So uh, the cortisol increases in, a, in an effort to increase your blood glucose, but also yep. is it a result of the, your body converting over to, di to lipolysis, digesting yep. the fat stores, and the, the fats are primarily PUFAs, they're going to be pro-inflammatory mediators, which also contribute to it. And, and exactly. so that's correct. I just wanted to, because it, that is, you know, you, you didn't mention them together, but there's two mechanisms going on here. Yep. And, and would you say they're both equally contributing or is one more than the other? 
I think they're both equally contributing um, because, I mean, the, the reason is confirmed is, as I said, the endotoxin experiment confirmed that the rising of endotox, uh, the rising of cortisol um, is actually a, a good portion of it is driven, at least above baseline, is driven by this inflammatory state, which is caused by the endotoxin. But PUFA can cause the exact same state. So, so just as you combine them. So you, the reason you're getting the <laughs> elevated cortisol is you're kind of killing yourself. You're removing the, the, the fuel, right, which is what your brain wants. And then you're telling the body, okay, Okay, consume me right instead okay i'll consume you but the things that you stored are kind of crappy. toxic and <laughs> killing you <laughs> all right so we have to pay for the sins of our past or at least acknowledge that we've sinned in the past now most of this sin was a sin of ignorance because virtually very very few, it's literally it's it's way less than one percent of the population understood this was going on and and most of the understanding came in the, this century Last century, it was this was virtually unknown. I mean, probably Ray Pete was ahead of the crowds. I don't know when he started his understanding of it, but he was one of the few people. And I want to dive into Ray Pete if we have time because he's another. Probably we're going to have to have you back for Ray Pete you know, because that's a whole other rabbit hole to dive in. But I want to finish this one because it's so important. So essentially, because we made those sins, we committed those sins, we non intentionally filled up our fat stores with linoleic acid, and almost everyone has. You know, over 20% of their fats are linoleic acid stored in their cell membrane. So you've got the, the, if you are going to address your health, you've got to take any efforts and steps to integrate that knowledge into your, into your, your, uh, your take home points, which you're going to, which you're going to implement. So, um, and along those lines, I, I want to go back to the, again, to how do we safely reduce these stores of linoleic acid without self-sabotaging. We clearly know, you've made it abundantly clear and provided the mechanism of action that it is not extensive fasting. You are self-sabotaging if you engage in that behavior. So stop it. It's well-intentioned, but it's confused and it's basically fails to integrate the understanding of the importance of this massive amount of a toxic a fat that we've ingested through out of ignorance. So what's the safest way to lower those levels? And it's going to take years, you know, to, it's going to take you at least five years. You're going to, you know, that once you start. So this is, this is a marathon. This is not a sprint. Okay. So a bit of a good news, whether it's, whether it's applicable to humans yet, yet to be determined. They did a study with monkeys. Uh, mm-hmm. And they looked at their fatty acid profile in the tissues, the fat tissues, just like humans. Basically, they're like us. Mm-hmm. Um, they, if they feed them crappy puffer meals, they're going to accumulate puffer in the tissues. And then they put the monkeys on a completely fat-free diet for 30 days. Now, a disclaimer, I'm not advocating for that. I'm only providing it as an informational piece that it may be possible to do it more quickly than, uh, you know, the several years, which is what the, half, the long half-life would imply. Okay. So for, after about 30 days, the monkey started producing the so-called need acid, which is um, an omega-9 uh, mm-hmm. monounsaturated fat. And it's basically a, sim- a symptom of essential fatty acid deficiency is what medicine calls it. But it's basically low levels of, of polyunsaturated fats. Our bodies start producing meat acid when there is not enough of these fats into the bloodstream. And then they looked at the, again, of the, of the fatty acid uh, profile, of the fatty tissue. It was still mostly puffer, just like you said a very long half-life, but uh, basically the outer layer was now mostly saturated because of the, you know, the, 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 the sugar diet that was eaten, no puffer whatsoever. Um, and then uh, basically these animals stayed in a f- essential fatty acid deficient state for as long as they were consuming the zero fat diet. However, they didn't look very happy. They were nervous. 
Um, they were like, they seemed like they were hungry all the time. Their metabolic rate did increase, which is one uh, uh, probably confirms the anti-metabolic effects of PUFA when they were mm-hmm. completely cut out. Um, so what else can be done? Well, then they've looked at the fatty acid profiles of people who have changed their diet drastically. Usually people from uh, Far East Asia, especially Japan and like the Okinawa, when they come to, to a Western country and they just kind of changes their diet. So they've looked, they've done some studies of how long does it does it take? Well, we said we shouldn't be overexerting ourselves. We shouldn't be starving chronically, right? Um, there's always some baseline lipolysis going on because your muscles prefer it rest to oxidize it. So what, so what does that mean? Well, we should build muscle mass, right? We should be uh, maximizing the lean muscle mass in the body. Um, and several studies already came out, said it's a very good predictor of long-term mortality and morbidity. Mm-hmm. The more lean muscle mass you have, the lower your overall chance of dying for any, from any cause, infectious or chronic disease or cancer or whatnot. Um, and then, so what, what does that mean? Concentric exercise, right? Um, stimulating the muscles to grow. And since we already mentioned the, the cortisol is a very catabolic steroid for the muscles, doing what, what's possible to not get these, like, at least not have it chronically, right? Acute spike of cortisol is unavoidable. You almost, you know, you barely get avoid a traffic accident. Of course, it's going to spike. Um, but, you know, things such as, again, chronic fasting or eating inflammatory foods should be avoided as much as possible, which means probably cutting out any vegetable oil. Um, if, if possible, if you're cooking, no, it's not possible. it has to be done. Yeah. There's just no excuse not to none, yeah. zero, nada. Unless you are completely eating fully prepared food, which, which is a bad for another reason, <laughs> financially yeah. and whatnot. If you're cooking your own food, you have the tools at your disposal to eliminate almost completely the consumption of polyunsaturated fats. Well, what does that mean? Well, if you have to fry things or cook them at high temperature, things such as butter, ghee, beef tallow, right? Um, even coconut oil, but it has a kind of lower smoke point. Uh, all of these are very good substitutes. And, and just for mentioning smoke point, it's important to know that ghee has a much higher smoke point than butter it's it's a so that's the preferred one if you're going to cook with it yes excellent yeah i i it's my favorite cooking oils ghee and then for salads i guess if you need something liquid i think olive oil uh but i wouldn't overdo it on the olive oil because it's about 10 to 12 percent linoleic acid that's assuming it's authentic 80 percent of it is adulterated it's adulterated yeah, it's, it's scary because now they've got it to the point they figure out the formula. They know the exact essence, how it smells, and they're adding all of – they're basically reverse engineering olive oil, but instead of oleic acid, which is predominantly in the real little olive lake. oil, they'll put little lake acid. They just make it smell and taste like, like olive oil. <laughs> the, that should be criminal fraud, realistically, it's poisoning yeah. the food supply. Anyway, that, that's so I'm still confused, though, because how could these – Monkeys or the chimp? Was it the monkeys, apes, chimpanzees, monkeys? monkeys? monkeys, okay. monkeys. Small the, monkeys. Uh, I think it was like a macaque or something. Okay, so so they're on a no fat diet, which doesn't seem healthy at all, at all. It seems, uh, but they they make the meat acid, but they had developed an essential fatty acid deficiency. How could they develop that when their tissues are stored with all this pufa? Well, the body uses the, the circulating PUFA in the bloodstream as a signal whether it's PUFA deficient or not, right? There's no, no mechanism through which cells can actually signal the entire body and say, hey, I don't have any PUFA, which they did. They do have PUFA, right? But if it's not circulating in the bloodstream, the body will take this as a sign that, that basically that there's, no, that there's not sufficient PUFA around. <laughs> and the reason I think they got this, this, this fat acid deficiency is because when they're on a high, if they completely fat-free that, which means most of your other 
calories will have to come from carbs. They cannot 100%. be high protein. Yeah. yeah. It's going to destroy your kidneys and whatnot. So they probably kept the protein about 20 to 30%. And then, which means 70 to 80% were, was carbs. So mm-hmm. all of this carbs, because of the insulinogenic effect and whatnot, was keeping lipolysis at almost zero. So they were not oh, shedding. Oh, that's what it was. Yeah. The carbs impaired lipolysis. Okay. Yes. And then, and then that's the, you know, that was a signal and then started producing meat acid. Of course, when they stopped the diet, you know, basically that the poof is still there, right? (laughs) That makes perfect sense. So you're that, so that really isn't a good strategy to remove it because you're not really metabolizing it. Well, you're always uh, releasing a little bit. I I don't think it's possible to fully block lipolysis, but if we basically, what you really want to do is to have enough there so that when it it circulates, because the blood ultimately passes through the liver, through the phase two detox mechanism. The liver is going to take these fatty acids because the liver does not like them either. It immediately will glucuronidate them and, and or sulfate them, and then which will make them more, more easy for you to, to pee out. But the, the quantity is the key. If you flood the liver with too much, they will actually fatten up the liver and damage it and put it in inflammatory wow. state and whatnot. If the liver is okay, but you know, but basically you're flooding too much to the point of basically them going to the kidneys, they can damage the kidneys, just like it happened to the marathon runners. So you don't want to be overexerting yourself leave your normal lifestyle uh, and basically uh, just try to make sure you're not getting into like a chronic bout of stress, which is going to increase the lipolysis beyond. All right. So, so what, what's your best guess is these were studies done in animals, obviously not in humans, but you, you, it sounded like you were uh, believing that this could rapidly accelerate the the removal of these uh, dangerous fats from your tissue. I would say realistically and healthily, you can probably get rid of about half of them in about a year. If you're, if, oh. if you're not exerting yourself, if you're looking for other ways, uh, you can basically, well, <laughs> again, disclaimer, not advocating it. There is an old weight loss drug uh, called dinitrophenol. Uh, it's banned by the FDA. Uh, yeah. Of course, I do not advocate anybody to use it or try it, but it's extremely effective at basically le- leaning people out. It, that's what it was used for back in the day. And it's a, a metabolic uncoupler, it, which means that it's going to force, it's going to raise the metabolic rate of the cells, but instead of producing ATP, we're producing heat. And that's actually how it can kill people by overheating them. Mm. But what happened is that if you're really morbidly obese, there's only two options that are currently offered. You either do surgery in which they're going to cut the fat out. It has quite a few long-term side effects yet to be understood fully, but looks like there are some side effects uh, unpleasant associated with that. Um, and the other option is to take some pro-metabolic chemicals that will basically help the cells metabolize the fat while it's there locally, instead of shipping it off to the liver for more proper excretion. Um, and some of the more well-known and legal pro-metabolic chemicals are caffeine, aspirin, um, you know, some of the amino acids such as uh, L-tyrosine is known uh, mostly to, because it's a precursor to the neurotransmitter dopamine. Salt t- tends, to be, tends to be thermogenic and stimulate the metabolic great. Um, I know as a doctor, you're probably, uh, I'm not, I'm not recommending so, but I'm saying it's thermogenic. No, no, there's, there's, to raise we've, the metabolic we've, rate. we've done several episodes on how, how it's really important to have enough salt. And most yeah. people are not having enough salt, especially if you're exercising. Yep. Protein is thermogenic. It's going to raise the metabolic rate. It's important to consume it with enough carbs because it, one of the 
biggest, one of the quickest ways to damage your kidneys if you're consuming a very high protein diet without sufficient amount of carbs. Uh, just the, the ammonia that's generated because you, you can only absorb, it shows that even a very competitive bodybuilder can only fully utilize about 120 grams of protein a day. Everything else that you that the, a, a person consumes is going to get oxidized as fuel and in the process gets deaminated, which means it produces ammonia. Very, very toxic, destroys kidneys, liver, and especially brain. Um, so so eat, eat your protein. Don't cut down on the protein, but don't overdo it. Uh, make sure the ratio of carbs to protein is at least two to one and completely cutting out PUFA as much as possible, um, you know, especially if you're cooking your own food. Then there's no two to, two to one. Do you just generally advocate that two to one protein to carb ratio? It depends on the how insulin resistant the person is. But in my experience, uh, most people are cutting off carbs too much to the point of where they're eating protein, which is also insulinogenic. And basically it's going to cause a hypoglycemic response, raises cortisol, and then they go into this, oh, this really. Uh, <laughs> oh, so now phosphorus, excess phosphorus is mm -hmm. supposed to be damaging the kidney too. What, what do you think is more damaging, the extra ammonia liberated from excessive protein or the phosphorus in the diet? I think the ammonia has has the potential for m m quicker damage. Uh, let's see if you have like a very, uh, if you run a lot, if you're in a very exhaustive exercise to get to a point where there's too much ammonia, you can go into a coma, right? Hyperammonemic coma, yeah, or sure. you can get the, the, the damage to the kidneys. But the phosphate is more nefarious in the sense that it's not directly toxic, but it lowers the metabolic rate. And it also, I think it's involved in the creation of the kidney stones, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then over time, excess phosphate uh, has been linked to a number of different cancers one of them is kidney cancer so so i think it, it, it it's just as damaging just the damage is not as immediately seeable is visible as it is for ammonia um so uh, carbs one of the good things about carbs especially if you're consuming fructose fructose tends to lower phosphate because fructose is very good at consuming phosphate for creation of glycerol three phosphate i think it's the mm -hmm. molecule yeah. Right. Um, it's one of the pathways from the, the metabolism of fructose, but it's been shown that the, the, the levels of phosphorus in the bloodstream and, and in, in the tissues tends to decline if you're consuming a decent amount of fructose, always together with glucose. I don't think it should be consumed on its own. Sure. Um, so fruit. Yes, exactly. Right. Fruit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Fruit. The benefits of fruit. So, gosh, this is so I, I'm really curious. Well, well let, let's I'll, I'll go back to this point. There's so much <laughs> we're never going to cover a fraction of a fraction. entire lifetime. Can be discussed. Yeah. So but you're just you're the fire hydrant. I, that's going to be your nickname, the fire hydrant. Um, such solid information. So the, the still going back to chimpanzees, you would suggested that you can reduce the half-life to a year. Well, the half-life already is about is a little bit less than two years because seven, what, 350, 700 days, and it's like 600 days. So it's just a little bit less. Uh, so is it worth it to take it from instead of seven years, you go down to three years to get it out of your system? Is that, I mean, that, it seems to me somewhat dangerous to have a low fat diet or no fat diet. Yeah, I'm not advocating the no fat diet. I think, like I said, if you're eating your normal diet, but you're excluding the dietary purpose, at least you're not adding to the yeah. forest, right? But then you're also you're raising metabolic rate or doing things that support the <coughs> metabolic rate. You're gonna have both the, uh, yeah. you know, uh, so you're not you're not exerting you're not exerting yourself. You're not raising lipolysis too much, which means the liver will take well, care of. A good what does portion. that mean? You said non-strenuous. Does that mean excluding exercise? Because that would be counterproductive. Because uh, you, when you're working out, I mean, if you're yeah. working out properly, you really are pushing it. That's quite a bit of stress and i think it will so i have definitely seen people who are 
uh, some doctors have actually started to, rec- to recommend people who are um, truly clinically obese mm-hmm. don't don't undertake any exercise regimen initially. Maybe through like diet and mm-hmm. and maybe even drugs sometimes, especially the hypothyroid. If there's a confirmed hypothyroidism, they will try to get them to a more manageable weight. But don't get into a situation where you have a 300 pound person start running five miles a day. They mm-hmm. can actually get into ketoacidosis very, very easily, especially if they're wow. insulin resistant. Yeah. Wow. So if the person is not at that level, if they feel like they have the energy, typically it's very hard to make the person run five miles because they, they're just not going to muster up the energy yeah, for yeah. that kind of exercise. Right. But if the person feels like they're energetic enough, I don't see a problem with, with basically doing a bike because it's mostly concentric exercise. Um, swimming is a very good one as well. Uh, climbing stairs, you know, things that are, they can be both endurance and strength building, right? Because you're well, also building resistance training, resistance training. Oh, great. Excellent. But I think the, I think it's a great exercise. Um, the, I don't like the part that a, a significant portion of it is eccentric as well. So if, if it, there's a way for you to get a, a, like a, like a spotter, let's say if you're doing a bench press. So basically you're, you're pushing the, the bar away from your chest, right? And then somebody, when it's fully raised, somebody grabs it and it slowly lowers, but not without you controlling with your muscles because that's the eccentric portion. Um, so if you can so do wait, mostly- wait, wait, wait. So you think the concentric portion is yeah. okay, but not the eccentric. Not the, eccentric. The, the eccentric is supposedly the, the portion of the exercise, at least in resistance training, that is responsible for most of the ma- the weight, the muscle gains. Because it because it dam- damages the muscles, yes. But that, that's really the mechanism. Um, but it's, as far as mitochondria building and converting the cells in the muscles into these little steroid factories for men to produce testosterone um, is that's basically concentric. concentric. Yeah, yeah. Really? I never knew that. Only wow. concentric exercise stimulates mitochondrial biogenesis. The eccentric one destroys it, but then because of the stimulus this creates, right? You're going to overcompensate wow. and you're going to do more muscle tissue. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Didn't realize that. So, so in general, as a, as a health strategy, would you advocate a get, or for limiting ex, the eccentric component of resistance training? Or, or especially, especially if the person, especially if the person has uh, elevated cortisol or at least high ratio of the wow. testosterone to cortisol for males and DHEA to cortisol for females. In fact, these ratios now have have been proposed as biomarkers for everything from mental disease to chronic stress, diabetes to cancer to cardiovascular disease. So anytime your so DHEA is anti-cortisol, has anti-cortisol effects, and so does testosterone. But for males, the primary the primary anti-cortisol hormone tends to be the testosterone, if they're producing enough of it. And in females, it's of adrenal origin because they don't produce as much testosterone, and it's DHEA. So if the testosterone to cortisol ratio is not at least 10 to 1, or if the DHEA to cortisol ratio, it's not at least 10 to 1, you're in trouble. Basically, that's really the cutoff that multiple studies have shown in people. You're already getting into the unhealthy state. Anything over 15, you're probably going to be obese. And anything over 20, it's likely there's going to be some full-blown clinical condition. Mental, metabolic, cancer potentially, um, uh, neurological, if you want. All right. So for those who choose to take a bioidentical hormone replacement mm-hmm. therapy, uh do you believe there's a significant difference between swallowing it and exposing that hormone to metabolism in the liver and, and lowering the likely uh, intake or input of the active metabolite and you're going to need conversion product or a, tr- a mucosal application, transmucosal application like a rectal or vaginal suppository? So do you have any thoughts on the differences between those administrations? Or do you think for most people, oral is efficient and th- even though you're going to have some reduced in t- conversion in the liver. 
So uh, recent studies have kind of confirmed what Dr. Pete has been saying for years, and he has a product based on that theory, is that uh, um, so when you ingest fats, uh, if the mm-hmm. fat has a carbon chain of longer than 14 carbons, so mm-hmm. I think it's called myuristic acid is the 14, anything higher than that, those fats get into the into the, the body, the systemically, get mostly through the lymphatic system. They avoid the first pass through the liver. Anything mm-hmm. less than 14, yes. Anything less than 14 is predominantly portal vein, which means they go through the liver, they get metabolized, Right. So what does that mean? Steroids are lipids. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if you consume the steroids without any fat, depending on the steroids, uh, and it, I think it's going to be confirmed that for most steroids, you get about 80% passage through the liver. The liver will, will deactivate a good portion of it. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to get a very low bioavailability, maybe right, 10, right, right. 10 to 15% oral. However, yeah. What happens if you consume the steroid with longer chain fats? Um, and oh. there was a company that patented this and just finished two several clinical trials and had their testosterone product approved where it is emulsified with long chain fatty acids, unfortunately from peanut oil. <laughs> <laughs> boom, boom, slap across yes. the face. Why can't it be olive oil? Why does it have to oh. be peanut oil? I mean, I guess it's cheaper, right? I mean, I know it is or, because it's cheaper. Or coconut oil. Or, yes. Yeah. So, but they they proved they proved even though there are studies that suggested that's the case they proved that when you ingest this testosterone emulsion in a capsule when it's emulsified with these with this peanut oil about eighty percent is actually avoiding the liver and you're getting like about eighty percent systemic bioavailability which is huge. Which means that if on a daily basis, a person, let's say a young healthy male produces between six and eight milligrams of testosterone a day, it probably means that if you take in orally 10 milligrams of testosterone in that formulation, you're going to be basically restor- mimicking the natural production of a young healthy male, which kind of like removes the, the need to take these massive oral doses, which would used to be given for many of the steroids from women progesterone. If you take an oral progesterone dosage, if you look at the formulation of the market, 100 milligrams, 200 milligrams, 400 milligrams, right? Well, you're wasting almost all of it because the liver, unless it's emulsified in these proper fats, is going to deactivate it just as you mentioned. So transmucosal, great, but the absorption rate there is key. Where does where does it absorb best? As you mentioned, uh, you, you already suggested, the mouth, right? Rectally, vaginally, right? There are other places. Turns out that the belly button, the navel also known as, has as a, 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 a over 80% absorption rate, of course, depending on the amount. It's a fairly small area. But there is a study which demonstrated, wow. yes, you can achieve 80% rivaling intravenous bioavailability wow. by administering testosterone dissolved in acetone and a single drop placed on the belly button. Almost fully absorbs. <laughs> Georgie, you absolutely have broken the world record for a number of pearls in this in a podcast. I, I'm you. just shocked. I mean, it's, I I think I stopped counting like a dozen or two dozen ago. It's crazy. So that that is amazing. So as long as we're on the topic of hormone replacement, I mean, some people will take the active hormone they're seeking to produce, such as progesterone or estrogen or testosterone. But what do you believe? What what is your take on the precursor ones? Well, you mentioned DHEA, but what about even for going back one state would be pregnenolone? Excellent. Uh, Excellent hormone, by the way. And probably... Probably the safest, or I should say, well, FDA does, know, does not allow me to talk about safety. Probably the least risky way, if you're going to be doing oral 
hormonal replacement therapy. First of all, why? Well, because it is the top precursor, right? Other than cholesterol, you don't have that many other options to actually stimulate the entire downstream uh, stereogenic cascade, as they call it. And then several studies found out that the limiting step to the stereogenic cascade is the side chain cleavage of cholesterol into pregnenolone. In other words, if you're giving pregnenolone, you should be giving the body everything that it needs to synthesize all of the other steroids that it needs. Um, I, I'm sure you've seen the studies in the early 20th century, pregnenolone was widely used to treat rheumatoid arthritis, uh, various other autoimmune conditions such as psoriasis, lupus, um, osteoarthritis, uh, multiple sclerosis even. But then uh, because its effects, first of all, it was affecting about 50% of the cases, 5-0. And then right around that time, I think the big pharma discovered the synthetic glucocorticoids and actually they managed to isolate cortisol as well. Then they found out that the, the glucocorticoids had a much more rapid effect and that clinically was preferred, right? If somebody comes in very bad shape, you want them to feel better in the next day or two, not like two weeks from now. So kind of pregnenolone fell out of, not favor, but at least interest, research interest. Uh, and it's also unpatentable. So recently there have been these studies demonstrated, at least in animals, that it's got this great pro-mnesic effect, very pro-cognitive effect. And it turns out that the brain accumulates pregnenolone more than any other organ. And it accumulates it preferentially, actually all cells preferentially accumulate DHA and pregnenolone, three beta hydroxy steroids, at levels a hundred times higher than what is in the bloodstream. That kind wow. of tells you that the body really likes it. Unlike PUFA, <laughs> which <laughs> get rid of it as quickly as possible, right? <laughs> so the so pregnenolone. So okay, so we're taking pregnenolone. It can go through any of the pathways, which is either through the progesterone and then cortisol, aldosterone, or DHEA, and then you know the androgens or estrogens, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, what happens? I mean, some people say, well, I don't want to raise my estrogen too much. Maybe I'm at risk of hormonal cancer, or maybe I already have this cancer. Well, recent studies with humans for mental health conditions, such as schizophrenia, administer pregnenolone in a dosage of 500 milligrams daily without any negative effect on any of the downstream hormones that they test. And they did test a major one, such as estradiol, testosterone, dihydrotestosterone, estrone, cortisol, aldosterone. It didn't change them in any negative way, but it did have benefit on their condition, which was schizophrenia, uh, type but, of psychosis. But, but did they implement your pearl of taking the pernitolone with the fat. No, no. Yeah, so that's the no, other thing. So, no. it, so if you, if you did that, it, it, it used that strategy, how much pregnenolone do you think the average adult, what the range would be if they, and what, if they took it with the fat and the fat, does that mean you could take it with like, say a, a meal or you're having two, three, four ounces of butter, or does it need Absolutely. to be actually with taken in a capsule that is, is sort of embedded in the, the fat? Nope. No, no need for capsule, just as long as you okay. take it with a meal that has these longer chain fatty acids. Okay. And again, we prefer, we say saturated, right? Or more than saturated. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, then you should be okay. Um, All right. And- so do you think that 500 milligram study that would probably be better with 100 if they took it with fat? I think 500 is too much. They, these yeah. people had severe conditions, schizophrenia, right? Yeah, they yeah. were untreatable, by the way. Yeah, so yeah. They, they already failed therapy. So physiological dose of pregnenolone are between 30 and 50 milligrams a day for a very young and healthy person. Okay. Presumably, it was still producing some, even though we're, you know, with, with the aging. But I would say anywhere between the 30 and the 50 milligrams, I think is a very good dosage, especially if taken with those, uh, with, with the fatty meal, preferably with those longer chain. Uh, is this for young, fat. healthy or for elderly individuals uh, for elderly like i would say so after about 30 the age of 35 both dha and pregnenolone starts to rapidly drop 
Um, so I would say maybe it can be adjusted based on the age. If you're 30, then I'll take 10 milligrams. If you're in your 50s, I'll take 20. If you're in 60s and above, then you know between the 30 and 50, which is fully replacement of your daily production. Okay, so if not much more than 50, and the reason that 100 is typically used or even larger doses is because they don't understand the bypassing of the liver Precisely. metabolism if you take it with fats. Yeah. And, wow, and even with the 500 so milligrams. Profound. I've never heard of that before, but it makes perfect sense. Patented. Now it's patented and this company is selling their testosterone product. They call it, so, I forgot the name, but it's uh, that's really what it is. Are they, are they using testosterone itself? Probably not. Yeah. They are using testosterone? They are. They are. It's, they, okay, it was, so it's it was prescription. <laughs> Yeah, it's a prescription. For, yep. Yeah, but you could you could just as equal e- equally use a pregnenolone. Any any steroid. DHEA. Yeah. Progesterone. Anything you want. Oh, jeez, man. Because you know, uh, I forget the person's name, but he was John. John, I forgot his last name, but he was promoting in the nineties. He he passed. Uh, he was promoting transdermal progesterone. And I forgot his, and he lived in California. I just remember. But but the problem with transdermal progesterone is that uh, there's a a significant tachyphylaxis, the skin to, to resist absorbing it after a while. So it works really well for the first few months, but after that, it stops working. Emulsifying oil, rub it on your gums, emulsifying oil, ingested, emulsifying oil, juvaginal okay, so rectal. That's, right. yep. Is that, that's another repeat pearl. <laughs> <laughs> When did I'm just curious? I mean, we will we will address Ray Pete's uh, litany or plethora of solid knowledge in in, in a future episode. But um, when did he understand the damage of linoleic acid? He's had he has to be one of the first. That, or, or do you know of anyone that understood this before he did? Um, I, I think it was I mean I've seen studies before he actually I, he doesn't have that many published studies, but uh, he the writings where he actually really started kind of like attacking PUFA and specifically linoleic acid was in the late eighties and early nineties. That's when wow. most of his books were written. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So as long as we're on the lake, I mean, the, I, we are not going to hit even 10% of what I was thinking of hitting in this interview, but, but one of the challenges every time I talk about this, not every time, but most every time someone will bring up a researcher. I'm not sure if it's appropriate label for him, but Brian Peskin, and I'm sure mm-hmm. you're familiar with his work. Yeah. He's a strong advocate of uh, healthy omega-6 supplementation, which seems to me is almost medically reprehensible to, to make that record and negligent. It's just, it's just not necessary for anyone. So what do you think of Peskin's uh, philosophy or approach and recommendations in doing that? And do you believe there's any ever any need for omega-6 supplement? The only study that basically was used to declare the omega-6 essential fatty acids, meaning that we, cut, we absolutely need them. If we don't eat them, we're going to die or something bad will happen. Is based on a single study by the Burr and Burr, husband and wife, in the 1930s. I thought way. it was in the 30s, right. And, it's, yeah. and that's been disproven since. Exactly. So they said, so the, uh, yeah, I'm sure you know, like they fed the animals, these uh, PUFA deficient diets, they started developing these skin problems, right? And they said, well, we conclude that PUFA is deficient because when they administer it, then when they gave them the linoleic acid, all of these skin problems disappear, right? But what also they didn't know at the time is then was for, confirmed later on is that when you deprive animals of polyunsaturated fats, their metabolic rate drastically increases up to three times what is the normal baseline, which means that all of your needs for various cofactors and minerals and trace minerals and, and vitamins will drastically increase as well. But they didn't feed those animals those additional nutrients. So it's 
Oh, it's it, I guess it's normal for a engine that it's constantly being revved up, but you're not providing all of the things that are necessary to keep the engine in good shape. It's normal for the engine to start causing a bit of a problem. But these animals were not unhealthy. They simply had cracked skin, a uh, scaly skin, uh, and they had like a uh, sort of like a spotty loss of fur um, uh, on, on, on their coats. Other than that, they were completely normal. Um, and then subsequent studies have demonstrated that if you feed additional biotin or zinc, or selenium, um, or collagen, which is the uh, specific composition of amino acids in most in skin and cartilage, then all of these symptoms that are that, that the birds use to declare essential fatty acid deficiency, they can be they can be treated. The metabolic rate still stays high, but none of these unseemly side effects of PUFA deficiency are now visible. So I don't think there is a case for calling them essential fatty acids. And even if they were, um, subsequent studies demonstrated that you can satisfy the essential fatty acid requirements for any person of any age with at most two grams daily. Guess what? We're consuming a lot more oh, than, than two grams oh, daily. Yes. What's your perception of the amount? The, the, the confusion here results in how much linoleic acid is versus omega-6, because a lot of times there, there's distinction is not made. But... I, I I thought it was over fifty to seventy grams a day of omega six fat. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, if you if uh, the average American is consuming eighty to ninety grams of fat daily, used to be mostly saturated saturated fat. Mm-hmm. It's not anymore. Now it's mostly PUFA. So if that let's say if like ninety percent of that fat is PUFA and about sixty to seventy percent is linoleic acid, that you are getting like uh, in excess of fifty grams of linoleic acid oh. a day. That's massive, massive. Twenty five times what you need. Yeah. And in and, and prime, it, it, do, do you concur that that from uh, or my belief that this is the primary culprit of almost all metabolic disease? Oh, and in fact, if we if we now that we're more evidence started to accumulate that things like cancer and Alzheimer's and Parkinson are also metabolic diseases, at some point we may be able to make the statement that it's omega six is the primary cause of all diseases. And furthermore, now that the starting science started to draw the parallel between diseases and aging, the primary risk factor for disease is what age, right? Yeah, for yeah, chronic disease. Yeah, yeah. So if they are the same process, it may very well turn out that omega six is at the core of our deterioration um, as as organisms throughout life, whether it's pathological or natural aging, as they call it, may turn out to be the same thing and nothing natural about it, maybe self-induced. All right, so let's tie up the bow on the uh, omega-6 oil recommendation as a supplement. Do you believe as I do that those should be, it will never happen, but that the FDA should ban those and remove them from all the shelves because there's never, never, never any need to take an omega-6 supplement. Absolutely. I think if that happens, we're going to see a drastic reduction, first in cancers and then later in the more traditional metabolic disease, such as diabetes. Yeah. So if you're watching this and you have some and been convinced for whatever reason by reading Brian Peskin or others that suggest you should get omega-6 supplement, toss it out or give it to a neighbor or or relative that you don't particularly care for. Or, or make, make varnish out of it. Makes for a very make good varnish. varnish <laughs> well, Georgie, uh, I can't tell you what an absolute thrill it was to have this dialogue and conversation because you are s- it, so amazing. I've just never, ever had so many new insights and 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 inspired to in, in, integrate this powerful information. You know, fortunately, it took me a lot longer to get to this level of understanding than it did to you. You found it a lot earlier. I think, think largely to Ray Pete, you're discovering Ray Pete, who learned about this in the 80s. So he was clearly a pioneer and leader in this area. But this is so, so important. And I've only touched on a small fraction of what I want to. 
to help people understand, A, understand this, because you're not going to be motivated to action unless you understand it and you have the sound logic and reasoning why you need to implement the strategy. So that is one. But we just, we just need to have this to be motivated to action because we're both in agreement. This is the single most important strategy you need to do. And, and I so appreciate your refinements and your, your simplified explanations of how the, the primary cause of death in the United States, if you believe the medical model, I think it probably now has changed to the COVID jabs is primary cause of death, which causes heart attacks you know, through, through other mechanisms, but, it, but clearly heart disease is the number one recognized source. In cancer. cancer. Now it's starting to become cancer. Yeah. Yeah. Cancer it's, it's head and head, but both of those are primary linoleic acid excess conditions and, and can be radically reduced, if not almost eliminated in most people, if they understand this and implement it. And in your, your, personal experience and deep dive into the metabolic explanation of why low carb can be so dangerous was magnificent. I've heard it from a number of people sharing similar information, but and I don't know, maybe that helped me understand it more because when you explained it today, it was so crystal clear. I mean, it's so obvious. And if you're watching this in the, in the summary and you didn't get it, I would occur, first of all, do not watch this video. This you can, you should be banned from watching this video at more than normal speed. If anything, it's half speed, not two two x. You're not going. You got to listen to this at normal speed and listen to it multiple times because, I mean, Georgie's gave you so much information. It would take you years to accumulate this, and this is a small fraction. He's definitely coming back on a number of occasions maybe four or five, six times, and I don't even think that's going to be enough to figure out and to understand what you have to share and what you've learned over the last 20 years, self-learned. So I am so grateful for your diligence, your persistence, your dedication, and the way your mind works. You have a special mind to figure this thing out and remember it and put it together in in pretty simple terms to understand. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much. I'm so grateful to have encountered you and have a resource to you to help us understand this massively important topic. So if people want more information, I'm sure they will. I'm going to provide it with them, but I'm sure you, what, what's the best way to find out more before I get you back here? <laughs> where, 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 where can they go and get more Georgia Dinkoff? I just have a blog. Uh, I write online under the alias. Hey, oh, Hey, uh, what, what what is that name from? Because I I've been you know I've been reading your blog for the last two or three years ever since I got interested in this, and I don't know how I encountered, it, but I did. And uh, what is it? What does that name come from? Uh, it means rebel, like a guerrilla fighter. Um, okay. I'm originally from Bulgaria, and basically, oh, for, it's a Bulgarian term. Yeah, yeah, oh. it's a B- Balkan term, but it's like means like the people who fought against the Ottoman Empire to free themselves, right? Okay, uh, and they always they always were kind of a bit of outcasts and whatnot, but they came up with a lot of ingenious technologies still used locally. And I've always felt a bit of like I've always been not an outcast, but anytime I have a social conversation with people on the health topic, of course, the immediately the question becomes about uh, you know bad cholesterol and the statins they're taking. And I would say, oh, my God, you're killing yourself. Don't stop. Why are you taking these drugs? So they're like, look, you with your rebellious ideas to the side, to the side, please. <laughs> so that's that's really the moniker. All I've right. always so had you've it. got your blog and you're another podcast, too, I think. Yeah. Uh, dot me. That's the blog. Okay. Okay. And then um, I get invited to several other podcasts. Um, 
There are a number of different people in the bioenergetic community. That's what we call the metabolic theory of health. And, and you're, I think I've been told, and I, I haven't followed Ray Peets, which is a mistake from my my view. I just missed him. I just, because I've known of his work since the 90s or maybe even the late 80s. Uh, but for some reason, I just, you know, I wasn't mature enough and wise enough to understand and appreciate what he was, information he was providing. So I dismissed him and I kind of avoided him for a while. So, but my understanding is that you are probably one of his best students and understands his approach the best of anyone out there. Would that be a fair characterization? Or at least study, study him the longest. Um, okay. I mean, I've been reading his things since 2010. Okay. Um, and then after that, around 2018, I started doing confirmations through my own studies. Mm-hmm. And a, a great one for Little Lake Ass, which probably be a good a good finish for the for the podcast, is that we uh, try to do a, a, a cancer study with uh, with mice, and mm-hmm. I wanted to see what what happens if we put them on a fat free diet, which is another way to say they put them on a poof of free diet, right? Mm-hmm. So we put them on a on a fat free diet for two weeks, and this, the way this 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 uh, experiment works is uh, these mice are immunosuppressed, and then they get injected with a human tumor, right? Guess what? The group that was puffer depleted, which took about two weeks, we could not get them infected with cancer. <laughs> yeah, they just sat there and like it took these injections and it came back for more and over and over and over. While the other group, which was normal diet, got the tumors and in about two weeks they died. That was really the experiment. While the ones that were on the fat-free diet and we proved that they were puffer depleted because we checked meat acid, or at least the tissues maybe still had puffer, but they were puffer depleted in the blood. They could not get inoculated with cancer. So if anything else, I mean, this one experiment with human tumor, mental cell lymphoma, the cell line is JAKO1, J-A-K-O-1. It could not get transplanted. And the converse of that too is what my understanding is what kills most people from cancer is not the primary cancer, but the metastasis. Metastasis and cachexia, which is basically, it turns out driven by lipolysis, which is recently found that most of cachexia is cortisol and lipolysis. Oh, unraveling the mysteries of medicine, you know, all these things that we had no clue or understanding as to what the cause was, you, you, you help us understand it. So that is, you know, and, and what comes to mind immediately, and I've interviewed him a few times, and really a, a giant is, and I'm sure you're familiar with his work, is Dr. Thomas Seyfried out of Boston College, who's written a lot about the metabolic contributions, metabolic causes of cancer. But I, he doesn't understand linoleic acid. He doesn't understand the, the, the restriction of what you're doing what you've uncovered with your own research. And I think integrated, because he's got some solid knowledge and I love the man. He's really, he he definitely understands molecular biology, but I think integrating this understanding of linoleic acid into what he's doing could exponentially improve the results. Any any kind of insight into current cancer therapies that PUFU is a major factor will probably steer the, the entire field in, in the right direction. I mean, yeah. it's just, uh, just a simple realization that these cancer patients are always under stress, which means always high lipolysis. So nothing, give them a little bit of vitamin E, a great way to sort of like block some of the effects of PUFA. Um, just just that, just simple intervention, or a little bit of aspirin, which is anti-lipolytic or anti-inflammatory right. and whatnot. Um, so so but I think we're seeing an awakening. I mean, I've seen several studies now proposed that says 
look, we had, we got to give baby aspirin to cancer patients. The risk, the benefits vastly outweigh the risks. We're wow. seeing lower inflammation. Inflammation is high in cancer patients. Do you, but think, if, it's just, do you think it's just baby aspirin or do you think it's even higher? Oh, high. Oh, it has to be high. Yeah, but like I think nine, the, like they, they don't dare. They were nine grams a day. Yeah. That, that, was, that was absurd. I don't know how they got an ethical approval for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, look, uh, I mean, I'm sure you know the aspirin, that they've used it uh, historically, they've used it for rheumatoid arthritis in four, sure, five, yeah. six, seven grams. A day, so it's oh, yeah, yeah. not that like absurd, right? Um, but even if the baby aspirin can be incorporated into like a current cancer therapies, I think it would at the very least will make them more effective. The current therapies, uh, and since inflammation is a known factor in the progression of cancer, actually in the genesis and the progression of cancer, we can be preventing many of these cases. Um, of course, I would like to see higher doses, but I think the FDA doesn't have a very good relationship, kind of like a love-hate relationship with aspirin. Um, every once in a while, they say it's very good. Now they're saying, well, the you, risks outweigh the benefits. Do you think it's just aspirin or do you get similar benefits from other non-steroidals or the, the side effects from the others are, are not worth the risk-benefit ratio? So the uh, I, I would not use uh, Tylenol because it's got a very well, that's peculiar. Not, that's, not, that's not an example. Right. Um, so ibuprofen is a good NSAID. Unfortunately, has uh, now confirmed uh, a risk with heart failure and heart attacks, uh, future heart attacks. I don't know why. The mechanism is still not entirely clear. Uh, for a while, they tried to blame aspirin. They said, oh, these are all COX inhibitors. Must be that. So aspirin probably has the same effects. No, aspirin actually reduces the long-term risk of heart attacks and ischemic heart attacks and strokes. Um, so I think ibuprofen could be useful, right? Uh, the, the diclofenac, which is an older NSAID, yeah, yeah, sure. was used. Those tend to be uh, more benign. Um, naproxen sodium is another one that's commonly used. It's less risky than ibuprofen. So if you're going to use an NSAID, I would say stay away from ibuprofen, preferably aspirin. If you cannot get aspirin, then naproxen or okay, the so diclofenac. Yeah, this makes the most sense. It's also the least expensive. All right. Well, this has been beyond fantastic. I can't thank you enough. And we're definitely going to have you back. Uh, I'm, you've got so much knowledge. <laughs> this is great. All right. Well, uh, thanks again. And, you know, we'll put a link to your blog and, uh, and uh, we'll look forward to connecting. Thank again. you. Honored to be here. Hopefully it was useful to yeah. the listeners. Uh, we have a lot, a lot more to talk about. <laughs> I know we've only only, and this is not a, a metaphor. We've just scratched the surface, folks. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again.